All right, welcome everyone. My name is Mark Hummel, and I'm sitting sitting here with a friend, Corky Siegel, all Good the way friend. from Chicago, and he's in Berkeley right now playing some gigs with Ernie Watts, and his lovely wife Holly is sitting back here, and uh, we're just going to talk about Corky's career, and um, <coughs> your beginning is in music, and then just all the things that you've done, because you have really done things. You've done a lot of things, and I mean, you've done things that are very unusual for a harmonica player, in the sense of, um, you know, where you've taken it has, yeah. has really been an unusual path. So, um, I guess I'll just, start, usually I just start off with, you know, your background, where you grew up. You're from Chicago originally. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up in the suburbs there? Where did you grow up exactly? I grew up in the south side of Chicago. Seriously? South. Yeah. In the south side? In the south side of Chicago. Wow. So that's... That's pretty unusual, yeah. Helpful connection. The 60s, 50s, Absolutely. 40s, 40s. So describe what it was like as a kid growing up in the south side of Chicago. Was it, was it a mixed neighborhood back then? No, and it's interesting that you bring that up. Were you in Hyde Park? Uh, no, further south. Okay. And... We always thought that this was a free country and we treated everyone equally. That was the story. And I, I, I looked out the window and I noticed that that wasn't the case. I felt more comfortable in the black neighborhoods than I did in my own neighborhood. And in those days, you didn't go into the black neighborhoods. So you, are you saying that the neighborhood you grew up in was sort of a white enclave compared to the other part of the South Side? Absolute white. Really? Yeah. What was that called? It was called South Shore. Oh, okay. That's near Hyde Park. Yeah, South yeah. Hyde Park. Okay. Hyde Park is around 5,500. Right. This is 8,800. So. Okay. And actually, uh, one of our friends who played in your group, uh, Billy Boy Arnold, Right. Lived later, just a few blocks from there. Hmm. A few blocks from there. Really? So there was, yeah. And that was in the 60s? Yeah. Right. So we, so in the 60s, I would venture, as a saxophone, learning to play saxophone, rock and roll saxophone, I would venture into the black neighborhoods and, and find places to play there. And how old were you at this point? Oh, let's see. 17 something okay. like that. and uh, so in 1965 was a turning point uh, I had met Jim Schwal guitar mm -hmm. player uh, and we had a musical connection immediately and we wanted and we were learning some blues and we wanted to go out and I, I was playing piano and harmonica. I was just learning harmonica. Mm -hmm. And um, we wanted to go out and just play some tunes in public. It's sort of what you do, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're looking for somewhere to play. And uh, one of the first things that happened, I'll just throw this in really quick, is uh, we walked into this coffee house and there was no one in the coffee house except for two customers sitting way in the back. And we, there was a guy, you know, serving. And we said, oh, mind if we play a couple of tunes? Sure. It was a little weird that we would do that. But 
So Jim pulls out his guitar and I hear a harmonica and we play a couple tunes and these two guys come over and they go, you know, we were listening to you, your songs and we thought maybe you'd want, we're working on a musical and maybe you'd want to work on a musical with us. So we started working on a musical with us, with them for, for like six months. Mm-hmm. And, and it ended up that we were going to be in the musical. It was going to be a four-person musical. And it was about, at the time, capital punishment. Mm. And they get called to New York. They had already, we had already booked the theater in Hyde Park. And they get called to New York and drop the project. To jump ahead, years later, when we were the Siegel Schwab Band, we were playing in New York. Uh, Steve Paul's scene, Tiny Tim was opening for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, these two guys come in. But this time, one guy had hair like that, being natural. One guy had blonde hair all the way down his back. And they said, you know, we've changed. We, we still want you to write the music. We've finished the play pretty much. We want you to write the music for it. But we've changed the topic. It's no longer about capital punishment. It's about the hippie movement in San Francisco, and it's called Air. Now we're calling it I knew, Air. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we did not. We did not write the music for it because we were on the road, and right, and right? Stuff like that. And but they did come. Radio and Radney. Those are the guys we were working with. Mm-hmm. The authors of Air. They came to Chicago before it opened off Broadway and played all the music for me on my piano. Wow. And then and then invited us when next time we were in New York to see the opening off Broadway and, and I got oh, to, wow. to see it and it's amazing. So it's just a little something. This yeah. is while we were, all this was happening while we were still in college. Yeah. And we're not had no ambition other than we wanted to play music. Now were you going to college at uh, Roosevelt uh, University? And Roosevelt's in High Park. Roosevelt is downtown Chicago. Oh, downtown Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, that happened. University of Chicago. Yeah. The one in High Park. So you know, here we are, you know, in the coffee house playing, and then then we're doing it. So then, in the meantime, we're. What looking, are the chances of that? I know. It's just amazing. That's crazy. And then, you know, and then later we produced Joni Mitchell's Circle Game and some other songs. You produced her. it. Yeah. You mean is it was a musical? No, she, she wanted uh, a demo tape, Johnny oh, Mitchell. Okay. She was opening shows for us, and she wanted demo tape, and we said, well, you know, produce one for you. So she came to Chicago, wow. and Jim and I produced a demo tape for her so she could get a record deal. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is all Crazy like, stuff, still in yeah. college, you know? Yeah. Crazy so, stuff. But the point that I make is that we were looking for somewhere to play, and... We wanted to do this on across the tracks. And so we walked into this place and said to the guy, we'd like to play here. And he says, well, why don't you, the women are coming in this afternoon. And because this was in the afternoon that we had went in there. Why don't you set up right here on the floor and you can play for them? So Jim and I had a two-man band thing with I had drums under the piano bass drum mm-hmm. and hi-hat, and harmonica and piano and the stick on the hi-hat. Right, right. The whole deal, you know. 
he said, I'd like you to play every Thursday night here. And we started nine at night and go to four in the morning. But I don't want the two-man band thing. I want you to, uh, I'm going to hire a bass player and a drummer. And so that was Pepper's show lounge. Right. It's Pepper so lounge. it was Johnny Pepper. Yeah. And yeah. the first bass player was Mac Arnold. Right, who's still around. Yeah, and I didn't know that, and he yeah. wrote me recently. Yeah, right. And all the famous bass players, we played with all the famous bass players and all the famous drummers. Right. Every one of them. Who did you play with on, did you have Jack Myers on bass? We had Jack, Jack Myers actually toured with us. Did he? Yeah, he went wow. to New York with us. Okay. Uh, when we went, went to New York with Holland Wolf. And was Sam your, Sam Lay your drummer? No, I didn't meet Sam until a little later. Oh, okay, so who were yeah. your drummers that played with you? Name some blues drummers. Fred Below? Yes. How about uh, um, uh, who's another? Uh, uh, Anderson. S. S. P. Leary. Definitely S. P. Yeah. Leary. Wait. S. P. Played with. Yeah, S. P. That's well. right. S. P. Yeah. Leary. Uh, uh, Below. Yeah, Below Anderson. That oh, Bobby with Anderson. Bobby Anderson. Yeah. Was really a good friend. Yeah, he was a great bass player. And uh, all the drum. Those are drummers. And then the no no uh, Bob Anderson oh Bob Anderson bass we played with him bass player but yeah. there's a there was a drummer that played with Paul Butterfield oh uh, besides uh, besides Sam right Sam. after Sam oh uh, uh, Davenport yes Billy, Billy Davenport, Davenport. Yeah. yeah so he was a, so all the famous drummers yeah all the famous bass players Blue Blood you know the whole thing right, I played right, with right. every one of them because they were our bass player and drummer right one of the Thursday nights yeah. So and was then, it like constantly changing as yeah. to who you would have? Yeah. Yeah. And but Mac Arnold said he played with us the longest. Oh, did he? Yeah. But uh, and then and I, how I, long did you guys hold that gig? God, I don't know. It must have been like at least six months. Six months. Something like okay. that. Okay. But then you know the first night Holland Wolf came and sat in and yeah, the water. It's so amazing. And, and then the story about little Walter. Right. And all these guys That's came to sit one. in night after night. Tell that story night. of little Walter. Okay, I will. Yeah. And, and you know, if a harmonica player came to sit in, I'd play piano. Right. If a piano player came to sit in, I would play harmonica. Or if a piano player and harmonica player wanted to play, I'd say, go ahead, and they'd just yeah. go up on stage and play with the rest of the band. And, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So did Span sit in a lot? Oh, yeah. Go to Span? Well, well we, we played with Span. Span took my place when we were already the Siegel Schwal band and I got sick one time. Really? And Span... He subbed for took you. Him, yeah, he's, he wow. played with Jim and Raul and the rest of the yeah. guys. But, um, so, you know, this is still 1965. Right. And so this one guy wanted to sit in and for one reason or another, I said, well, why don't you come back another time? And the whole audience went, hey man, let him sit in, that's little Walter. Did you know who Little Walter was? Well, as I tell the story, I go, it gets worse. I didn't know who Little oh, Walter was. Oh, my <laughs> Shame on you. I well, I listened to all that. You know, I had the album. Yeah. I had the Muddy Waters album. Right. But I never read the back of the cover. Right. You never read, read I was going, the music, the music. And I just get to the piano. Right, and right, I right. didn't have any interest in reading anything. I wanted yeah. to play the music. Jeez. And so I didn't know. So I let him sit in, and then he started playing. I went, oh my God. Did it blow your mind? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this was my life back then. Total naive. Right. Just, it was just about the music. I didn't care. I mean, I loved the people. 
and they return that. But, right. But I didn't care about the history. Right. You know, I just cared about the music at that time. Right. I honor the history. Yeah. And I would have honored Who do you think is the heaviest person you heard back then? I know you loved Helen Wolf, but... What, Holland Wolf, uh, definitely. Definitely at the top of the list. Yeah, and right. Hot Wolf and Muddy. Yeah. Willie Dixon. Yeah. Did Dixon come sit in some? Mm hmm. Did he? Yeah. Uh, and the most amazing thing is now we're Siegel Schwal. Well, no, we weren't. We didn't become Siegel Schwal until the first album. And that was Vanguard? Yeah. 66? 66. When, when, yeah. when Vanguard said, What's the name of your group? We didn't have a name. It was just me and Jim. Now, did, did Sam Charters sign you guys? Yeah. Okay. But Ahmed Adigan was there to sign us, and Sam really? told him we were already signed. Wow. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what were you thinking? Yeah, oh, and you have no idea. I'm not going to tell the stories. Boy, we have some stories about that naughty Sam. Oh, man. No, Sam Charters. Oh, Sam Charters. I've heard all kinds of stories about Oh, you oh hell yeah. Well, we got to tell you went off. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, uh, I know so many people that were on Vanguard. I mean, Country Joe. And, oh, right. And, oh. and Muscle White and so many different oh, yeah. people. Well, yeah. Country Joe sure has Country Joe stories. has some serious stories about Sam. Well, you know, the weird thing is he told me that Sam came to San Francisco and wanted to sign a psychedelic band. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't decide. I mean, Ed Denson was Joe's manager of The Fish. And Ed was kind of showing them around, you know, uh -huh. taking them into Fillmore and the Avalon. And I guess Sam really didn't latch on to anybody. Like, you know, in the, the whatever amount of time he was here. And it wasn't until the very end of the trip and he goes, you know, I kind of like you guys. Why don't I just sign you? So he signed the fish right then. <clears throat> he came in here to Siegel Schwab at the Fillmore. Right. And we got a standing ovation. And after the show. That might have been the same trip. It could have been. We're talking yeah. about we're talking about the uh, the show and, and he said, Oh, you guys weren't that good. And and we said, What do you mean we got a standing ovation? I mean in those days. Right, right. right. And uh, he says, No, you didn't, people were just getting up to leave. <laughs> what a nice guy. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so it, 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 so we weren't the Siegel Schwab man right. until we signed with Vanguard. Mm -hmm. So that was like 66, so all 65. Playing at Big John's, we were Corky and Jim. So what were you then when Sam saw you? What was it called? Corky and Jim. It was called Corky and Jim. Corky and Jim Blues Band. Corky and Jim's Blues Band. No, this was he. He came to see some Big Johns. I'm sorry. Oh, a Big Johns. Oh, yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, I just I said later on. Okay. After we even said, but anyway, so the amazing thing is that we were playing at Big Johns and Mother Blues. Those are two clubs on Wall Street. Right. And. We were at Mother Blues, and who comes in with his whole family to see the band? Mm -hmm. It's Holland Wolf. Right. So he comes in, and he tells me that Siegel Schwal is his favorite band. That is so funny. <laughs> and then he, so corrects, funny. Then, he, then he corrects himself. 
Right. He says, well, actually, no. You're my favorite white blues band. Well, he didn't say that, but what he said is actually, I, I love my band more. Right. <laughs> he loves Gee. his own band more. <laughs> but he said he wants to take us on the road. Right. And that was at the time we had just been playing with Jack Myers. Mm -hmm. And so I... Who was your drummer at the time? Uh, Russ Chabuk. That was our... Oh, okay. So, and, and he was just um, a marching band drummer. He didn't really know how to play the drums and he didn't want to join the Is team. he on the first album? Yeah. Oh, okay. And he didn't know how to play. And I said, look, it's just a little something and I'm keeping things simple, so not a problem. Mm -hmm. And then he did it. But we went on the road with Holland Wolf and I have that photograph. Right. No, so let me ask you a question. When you went on the road with Wolf, did he have his band as well? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was both bands. Yeah, with... Um, Hubert, Hubert, yeah, right. Sumlin, and all yeah. those guys, yeah. Yeah. And um, so, and we used to wait, he used to knock on my door in New York City every morning. That's what you were we saying, yeah. Time. We'd take walks every morning. Right, that's so awesome, yeah. And uh, uh, so that was really a, yeah. amazing. Well, I'd, I'd always heard Wolf was actually a really nice guy, if you yeah. know him. Totally. I mean, uh, but Dick Sherman's to told me that. You too. better get to know him. Right. <laughs> right. right. So, so that was like the beginning of Siegel Schwal. That's yeah. You know, and like I say, we were minding our own business. Uh, we didn't have any interest in the music business. Right. You know, we just went along with signing with Vanguard. And, you know, we didn't, and then we were just playing music. And honestly, all this stuff just sort of happened to us. And you guys, you guys, and Butterfield were the first two interracial. Blues bands out of Chicago, weren't you? Maybe, maybe. I'm sure Charlie Musselwhite was in there somewhere, right? Charlie came along just a little bit later. No, I think way before. Well, he was I think around he was even before. Be, I think, yeah, he was, he was a, around before, but you guys cut your Vanguard record before he did. He did? Yeah. Are you sure? I don't think his came out till 67. It might have come out earlier. I don't know, but I don't, who's I don't think so. You know, well, you, you're well, I'm counting. Yeah, because that's kind of yeah. yeah, that's kind of what I like to do. Yeah, so you keep let, track of everything. Yeah, so you could over, you know, you could interject something in here and say, "Here's the facts." Right. Here's the facts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but single swall. Corky didn't know. He don't remember. She no, remember. but but Charlie, amazing human being. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I he's got to say a, anything else. He's got an amazing memory too for all this stuff. But he told me, I remember he told me, speaking of uh, uh, of Sam Charters, he said Sam Charters called him and, and said, "Yeah, Charlie, I got your check for you down at the uh, at the Union Hall." Charlie said he went down and picked it up. It was three dollars. Yeah, welcome to the music business. I just, For the first album, which was an album you saw everywhere. Yeah. When it exactly. Came out. Yeah. I I recently start I'm starting to give my music away. Because I, I figured, well, the music industry is giving it away. Why should I let them give it away? I can right. it away. You might you can give it away just as easily. Yeah. Actually easier. Yeah, easier. <laughs> yeah, they have to pay me 0.004 cents. Exactly. So how old were you when you first started playing piano? Because you've been playing that longer, correct? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I played saxophone before that. So. And you mentioned stuff about Billy Boy. Something about Billy Boy. Living in the neighborhood. He yeah. took lessons from you. No. 
Now, Are what happened t- with Billy Boy is before Siegel Schwal, right. it's probably 1960. You could probably figure the date out. He was playing way far south side of Chicago, right. someplace. Maybe 63 or something. And I walked in with a saxophone. Right. To, because I was going around sitting in. In those days, I didn't. I didn't know anything, and I just right. said, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. I didn't know that, that you really shouldn't be doing that. But he invited me up, and, and it was Billy Black. Right. And he remembered. He remembered that. You seem to remember it years later. Yeah, years yeah. later, I was, uh, you know, I met him at Alligator Records and around the corner from my house. And, right. And he remembered me coming with the saxophone. And sitting in. A little white kid. And it was 1963, you think? Or Something one. Like yeah. Maybe wow. one, two. Amazing. Three, and, you know, yeah. so I was learning saxophone. Yeah. And, uh... So how did, I'm just curious, how did you end up finding out about clubs and, and, and blues and all that? What was your kind of... Well, we, uh, we wanted to play at a place that could have music. And this was just you going in there? Me, me. Oh, in those days? In those with days. With a saxophone? Yeah. Usually I was with other people uh-huh. that wanted to go around and they knew this person and they said, oh, there's this place way on the south side, this band is playing, they're really good. Yeah. Because, you know, we were trying to put bands together in those days. Uh, again, I was playing saxophone. Right. And I met a guy named Milton Boyland. Uh, at a music store, a really tall, amazing African-American blues player that was sort of played like Lightning Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And he was teaching me okay. how to play the piano, blues on the piano. Right. And, you know, we were just friends and, you know. And so like did he tell you something's happening? Yeah, it was sometimes Milton would say, uh, there's this group playing, you should hear them and bring your saxophone. Uh-huh. That kind of a thing. So I was always taken under the wing. Yeah. And you yeah. were what in your late teens? Early I was white teens? in my late teens. Yes, yeah. I'm okay. still white. You're still white. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that, Corky. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you said I was white in my late teens. No, I said you were still in your late teens. <laughs> so, so I'm just curious about the scene back then. There were so few white kids that were into blues at that point. Mm-hmm. Did you run into other people like like Charlie or, or Butterfield or guys like that back I, at that time? I, uh, I actually sat in on saxophone with Mike Bloomfield's band. And this was before, when Way Charlie before. and him were probably playing together back then. Charlie wasn't with them then. Yeah. I know they but, were playing together at that point. Yeah, that must have been yeah. a little later. But anyway, so all of that, you know, so I was early... But I wasn't playing harmonica then. I was playing saxophone. Right. When Butterfield was starting to play And were you playing piano then? Obviously. Um, You know, I have so many funny stories. And to see every time you bring something up. So before, I have no idea how this happened, but I get a call from somebody that that said, we understand that you play piano. Could you come and fill in? And I says, well, you know, you're going to have to tell me what the chord changes are for the songs. I was just like playing chords. I wasn't really playing the instrument. Mm -hmm. And the band that I was playing with, at the Something A Go-Go Club, 
Hmm. Probably in 61 or 62. Mm -hmm. Was Harvey Mandel. Oh, okay. And I was yeah. taking Barry Goldberg's place. Uh-huh. And this was before I played harmonica. Right. So you were playing piano I was piano just learning piano at the okay. time. And Harvey Mandel stood over me and yelled chord changes at me all night. Right. Right. How'd you do? I don't remember. You never got hired back. <laughs> I don't remember, you know, but I mean, I just as long as I was there playing piano. You think later. that was 63 or something? Yeah, 64? it couldn't have been much later than no. that. Right. Yeah, and then they started learning piano a little bit after that. The blue, right? And, and Harvey was playing kind of in show bands at the yeah. time. Yeah, that's and what I, I understood. Was, and it wasn't the Harvey Mandel band; it was uh, like Bobby V or something. Right. Like that. And I know, I know both uh, Barry and 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 Harvey were playing in those kind of yeah. show. Even Johnny Winter, I think, was playing in a show wow. band in yeah. Chicago for a while. Yeah. 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 I talked to Harvey the other day. Oh, he wow. Sounds like he's doing good, yeah. Is he doing good? Yeah, he's okay. doing better. He's playing a lot and stuff. Good. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, so so there were just a handful of white musicians that were really interested in blues at that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, well, there were some that we don't really think about. Carp, someone named Carp. Oh, Jeff Carp, right. He was a good... Yeah. Really good harmonica player. Yeah, Jeff Carpin. Yeah. Curly, Curly something. Curly Bridges? Sounds like No, he was a piano player. He was no, a black this is a, this piano was a player. Harmonica player's name is Curly. He was good too. Um, and then how did you meet, But did you meet Butterfield back in that time? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I felt like there was a friendship between Bloomfield and me and Butterfield. Mm -hmm. And Butter used to call me. Mm-hmm. And um, we'd meet at Big John's, and he'd want to go to dinner with me. Interesting. He really reached out. It was really beautiful. That's nice. And then he'd say, you know, I'm not really hungry. Uh, you want to go having some drinks with me? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, nah. I'm now, did you not drink? No. So a You're one times, of the few guys I know that didn't drink or do drugs yeah, at all. That's right. During that time. You're kind of the, the, the sober only, hippie. The only one. You're the only sober hippie I It was I me, and, me and two other people in San Francisco were the only ones that... The only sober me. hippies? Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. was Frank Zappa. So... Really? He didn't He didn't. He do didn't, it no. Huh. So, uh, oh yeah, so Butter, Butter, you know, would call me and we did that a couple times, but never hung out together other than meeting mm -hmm. to hang out and then to right. hang out. And then when I was at the Albert Hotel... He came down, knocked on my door, and he said, do you mind if I bring my record player down and play my new record for you? And I went, yeah, sure. So he brought his wow. record player down, plugged it in. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Put on the LP, yeah. this big thing, yeah. and played his whole album for me. Yeah, I love, I, love that, I love that about the old days, though. <laughs> I mean, there was something really, there was something really charming about Everybody, when they were that young and that new to it, and all. naive, and naive, and everyone kind of like little Walter, who's little Walter. There was well, there was just there was just such a there was a really there was a real charm to me about those early days as oh the white guys. I'm seeing all of us, all musicians. Yeah, when you start and you're a teenager or maybe your early twenties, and it's kind of like everyone I think gravitated to each other. And I'll tell you one thing that I only realized a couple days ago. Jim and I 
had no desperation. We weren't desperate. We just wanted to play music. Right. Not only weren't we desperate, we weren't, we didn't have any ambition about it. Right. We weren't trying to make it. Make it. Yeah. Just plain music. Now do you think Char you think you think Paul was trying to make it? I have no idea. Hmm. So do you, do you do really know, get a sense about that? Uh, I, I'll tell you, I know when uh, the, the time is I experience when people really are like that desperate and want to make is when they're not necessarily a known musician and they want to come and sit in. Mm -hmm. They want they want recognition. Right. And I don't want recognition. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy recognition. Right. But I wasn't trying to achieve it. I just wanted to play music. So, you know, it's it's a big misunderstanding, you know, I think, ab about uh, the music world. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and all these other people were speaking of, in my mind, you guys kind of were it, there at the right time. Oh, yeah. It was, it was so much, there was so much luck involved in being in Chicago and San Francisco in that period of time. Yeah. Those two places in particular. And you guys came out to San Francisco right... Right at the right time. Right at the right time, 67, 68. And, you know, to be a part of that, you met everybody. We were managed by Chef Holmes. Right, who ran the Avalon. Exactly. Yeah. And sort of... Family the, dog, the, yeah. The... the Main hippie in San Francisco. The main hippie in San Francisco next to Bill Graham. And it was exactly. kind of like the fact that you guys fell right into that meant that you got to play on bills with all these famous, yeah. later on famous bands. I shouldn't say at the time. Yeah, because they were opening for us. They were opening for you And, guys. and yeah. Bill Graham used to call us and I'd call him and we were just buddies. And right. hey, Bill, I'm, uh, we'd like to come up and play in March. Right. Come on out. Right. Here's a contract. Yeah. They send a blank contract. And these things were so, yeah. it was so loose and so kind of seat of the pants back then. Yeah. That there was a certain charm to it. And I think that's what a lot of people misunderstand is that there was a real charm to what was going on in both San Francisco and Chicago. And it's still seat of the pants. You mean the scene? No, me. Oh, you're still see the pants. My yeah. world, my world. Well, yeah, because you're an old hippie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think I think that's what what audiences get from you too is that they do get that they get you know quirky for who he is. And there's a history, yeah. And there's a history, and, and they and the history is and you're eighty and, and which the helps. That's and the history is fascinating. It is fascinating. I mean, as far as I'm concerned. What happened between 65 and, say, 71, mm -hmm. that was such a yeah. important time in music history. Yeah. There's nothing quite that matches it in the last well, at least for 60 years. For us, because of well, the yeah. blues yeah. explosion. Blues yeah, the blues explosion. explosion, the rock explosion, yeah. all the things that happened between those two cities, there's nothing like it. Yeah. And it was just the ma the mashup of all the kinds of music, you know, and you are a part of that. I mean, in the yeah. sense of that, you know, you started as a blues band and you ended up venturing out into all these different genres mm -hmm. within the the six years. I mean, that was like 
Wasn't it six years by the time you had done the San Francisco Symphony thing? In reality, Peppers are 65. Right. Big John's and Vanguard was 66 at the same time is when we started writing the mm -hmm. symphonic piece. Interesting. So the symphonic world for me started in 66 yeah. at Big John's. Yeah. Where Sage used to come. And I remember sitting sitting at the table with Bill Russo, mm -hmm. the composer, who had written Titan Symphony for Leonard Bernstein. Wow. And sitting and Sage, Sage Ozawa. Right. And Bill Russo and me at Big John's. Yeah. At Big John's. So he came up with the idea for you in a yes. way. Yeah. And he said, and Bill and Russo said, Yeah, Corky, how are we gonna do this? Hmm. And I remember giving him a plan for how we're gonna bring blues to classical. And, mm -hmm. and the first thing I said to them was the first thing we need to do, I believe, is make sure we offer something for everyone to not like. <laughs> Let's make sure we get that in there. Yeah, and they love that. I they said they this is yeah. absolutely what yeah. we have to do. We have to just make it work for us, right? And not worry about anything else, right? And it was pretty an out, you know. I mean, it was the first time something like that was written where, right? It, it isn't like the first time jazz and classical were written or something, like that, but it's the first time it was done with blues. That, well, with blues, but in that way, with that right. approach, and the approach being, let's make sure there's classical. Let's make sure there's blues. Let's make sure they're working to together. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that nothing like that has, has happened. Many, many symphonic rock things, all this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but not, it, it was more of a symphony backing up a rock band or a rock band playing symphonic style music, but right. not that. Yeah, That's the mashup that you guys did, and that was the intention of it. And that was 1966, and, and that was, was and that was Siegel Schwab. Yeah, and was yeah. performed in 1968 for the first time. Wow! So okay. we're talking about everything happened between 65 and 66. So when was the actual record out here? Not much later, uh, because it, it, we played it with the San Francisco Symphony. Right. Many, many times. Okay, so you're saying the first time was, was with the Chicago Symphony? Yeah, but not recorded. Okay. Not recorded. All right, gotcha. Then we recorded it with the San Francisco Symphony, and I don't think that came out until the 70s. 72 or something? Yeah, 73. I, re I remember that record. <laughs> I do. I remember it because it was such a kind of like, it was such a different thing. And it was kind of like it attracted people's ears because yeah. it was so different. Yeah, yeah. And then the other one, then I, I recommended another piece. Everyone wanted to do it. Seiji, Bill Russo, Deutsche Gramophone. Mm -hmm. And Bill was in the midst of composing a work for Duke Ellington. Wow. Which was commissioned by the San Francisco Symphony. And the San Francisco Symphony and the city of San Francisco decided they wanted to do my piece first. Wow. And so they switched it to me, and Duke Ellington died. So they never got to do the Duke Ellington. Wow. Piece. I mean, you there's up, a lot of You upsurged. No, I, it's you upstaged Duke. 
but that that's an unfortunate bit of history. But yeah, so that that's how it happened. That's the reality of how it happened. And um, you know, and then I started getting commissions right then, yeah. nineteen seventy five. The city of San Francisco. Martin Snipper was the head of the Arts Commission. They wanted me to write something for Arthur Fiedler for the San Francisco Symphony for wow. six thousand people at the Civic Auditorium. It's very showed up for that piece. That was the first. There's no pressure there. Is no it? pressure. Okay. Well, th I said, I said, there's no pressure. I don't live in this city. I could leave. Yeah. You guys have to stay. You yeah, think I could right. write a symphonic work, a blues guy? Yeah, exactly. Try me. You know. Yeah. So it was really a major success, and I got other commissions from that, right. including the Grand Park Symphony, and you know you read all this, and the National Symphony, and then I got, and you know to sort of evidence the fact that these pieces were successful, I got multiple commissions from the same orchestras. Wow! And I got you know or the same orchestras wanting to. Have me come back and write more. The the question I had because you sent me something uh, a couple days ago. Oh, that's right, I sure did. Yeah, and and I really I didn't realize how much stuff were you writing back then of the actual orchestral parts. Were you writing it the whole time, or were you writing it with people? How did that How did that happen? When you have a computer. It's like having an orchestra. Well, this is before computers. Oh, oh, the original stuff. Yes. Uh, I did everything I could possibly do. I had a four-track recorder. Uh -huh. I had a melodica. Okay. I had a piano. Right. I had a harmonica. I had my voice. Da, 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 da. So I would just record multiple, mostly the melodica. Mm -hmm. Record multiple tracks trying different things, writing it down. I knew mm -hmm. how to write, I knew how to notate. Right. Not fluently, but I said, a G, let's see, isn't that the second line? Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Well, how do I make it go faster? Oh, um, put double, you know, wings on it. <laughs> yeah. So you so you would basically write out a piece yeah. when you would compose it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay. afraid so. Yeah. And the first time I ever did it, I had William Russo, look at my score and he was going to manage the um copying of the parts as they say so you mm -hmm. hire a copyist hmm. to read your score and then copy the parts hmm. because you don't want to have to replicate it over and over and over right right so bill russo managed that for me he hired a copyist and, da, 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 da. and uh so he was very supportive in that but but after that i uh I just started writing this stuff myself, and yeah, writing it out by hand, but making sure it was what I wanted by having it, me and recording it on a four track, and hearing the relationships and rhythms and things like right. that. Right. Yeah, I was really, I was really impressed. I mean, I, I knew how long you'd been doing, you know, classical music and blues together, but I got to admit, listening to that piece the other day, how intricate. You, you're writing pieces. Yeah. You write very intricate pieces. And I have to tell you, that piece of the mo all the movements, yeah. there's there's three other movements. Yeah. That's the least intricate. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And there's some wild stuff. Yeah, it's pretty that impressive. I that really works. That's yeah. the amazing thing. It's like crazy, but it works. Mm -hmm. the, what you heard was more 
you know, if someone's thinking of bringing blues to classical, that would be the way to do it. Mm -hmm. The simplest way, because it's a slow piece. Right. And it's and the, the symphony is sort of playing classical melodies that you could improvise over mm -hmm. in blues. Right. You know, so which yeah. is a, really the basis of bringing the two together. Yeah. But um, there's other pieces where it's like really worked hard to find this meeting mm -hmm. where this is like really classical and this is like really not classical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. So the well, other pieces are like yeah, it's, the, it's, the it's really it's very uh, I mean it kind of reminds me a little bit of my friend Aki Kumar yeah who does the same thing with he's doing it with these old Bollywood songs exactly. but I didn't realize until just recently that he completely deconstructs and then reconstructs everything he's working on yeah so he's, there's a lot of a lot more originality that I kind of realized until I asked him that, he told me, you know, he really deconstructs and then reconstructs everything he's writing. And so, you, you, you were, you taught him, right? I didn't For teach him, but a he was bit. influenced by me. Yeah, definitely. He was definitely, definitely influenced. influenced. Yeah. But, but yeah. he's a great player. But he is, he's a great and player. And singer and yeah. showman. Yeah, he's a great and, showman. And soul, beautiful yeah. soul. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you know, I, I take credit, maybe I shouldn't because I don't know. I, I thought I was the one that when I met him, you introduced me to mm -hmm. him. I said, Aki, you have a whole culture of Indian music. Why don't you use that in your music? I thought I was the one that maybe he was going to do it anyway. Well, I don't know. All I know is but that I him and Jason Ricci had a lot to do with kind of constructing the ideas around what he ended up doing. Yeah. And Jason was a real motivator for him. Okay, I won't of, take credit for yeah, it. I mean, you know, I don't, I <laughs> I don't really, really know. I felt good about saying All that. I know is, I can tell you this, that basically what he told me was that after doing a blues band for two or three years, he kind of felt like, I need to do something that is my own, is really me. And not yeah. just another guy with a hat and sunglasses nah. in, a, in, a, in a shark skin suit. Right. And so he kind of abandoned that yeah. and went off on this thing of doing the Bollywood blues. And, and it's just it's blown brilliant. wide open. It is it's brilliant. blown wide open. It is brilliant. Yeah. And he's gotten I mean, a whole new audience. The first piece he did, I remember he did. Yeah. I, the, one of the first pieces he did, I just loved it so much. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. Yeah, about going back to. Oh yeah, yeah, that thing back to Mumbai. Very or whatever. Yeah. funky. Yeah, it's kind of like you a know, rolling and a tumbling almost kind of rhythm. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. But, and, but I think his his real motivation for it was was really just something that he felt like he could identify himself in and put meld the two things in a lot of ways, like oh you, yeah, totally. with the classical. And I had just yeah. come off, you know, performing with Dr. El Subramanian. Right. You know, and then I meet Aki Kumar. And yeah. And I go, Aki, yeah. there's this whole thing that is yours. Man. Yeah. It's like yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he may have, you know, he may have gotten that, that moment. We'll have to ask him. We'll ask him. Yeah. yeah. I want I want credit. No, I don't. Right. I don't need but, any credit. Ideas are a dime a dozen. You know, I mean, the, the, the thing we're, we're talking about here is really just the whole thing of of how, <clears throat> how do you find something that is really yours in music? 
And I mean, in a lot of ways, that's something you've really done. It's something Aki's really done. I've seen a few musicians that really kind of find something that is theirs. And it's, it's, that's a hard thing to do. Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters both complimented Siegel Schwab. Right. They said, everyone else is trying to sound like us. Right. And I, 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 uh, took that to heart. Well, I, I explained to them that I tried to sound like them. Mm hmm. And I failed. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad more white guys don't say that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I failed and I, yeah. I, and, and I gave up very quickly, like in 30 seconds. Yeah. And wanted to play music, that's all. So it wasn't right. like I was looking for my own sound or right. trying to do something It just kind of came. Yep. I just, I think, I think, you know, I've been doing this long enough, 60 years. Mm -hmm. I think I could offer the way into that. The way into that is number one, quote Jesse Colin Young, who after 60-some years of playing music, he says, what were we so worried about? Hmm. You know? Yeah. Okay? You're I saying, in other words, just letting things happen. We could all relate yeah. to that. Yeah, just letting things happen. Is, I, for me it was really clear because I, followed my skill. I did things that I felt comfortable with mm -hmm. and developed those. Right. That that was it. Right. You know? And... Uh, Instead of chasing after something, yeah. like a lot of people do. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and I think anyone could do that at any time. It's just, what do I really want to do? And that... The, the biggest crusher of individuality is the music industry. Oh, God. And our projection about it. Oh, yeah. I always say, when art, when, when, when commerce follows right. art, right. there's creativity, right. there's um, individuality, right. there's diversity. Right. When art follows commerce, everything becomes the same. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I heard a great, I heard a great uh, uh, podcast, well, it was on radio yesterday, and this guy was talking about how the whole al algorithms, that's like the beginning of no more art. That's right. Oh, you mean yeah. AI? Yeah. Oh, by the way. Oh, yeah. I got something on AI, I think yeah. you'll love. Artificial intelligence, right? Right. Intelligence is already artificial. <laughs> yeah as funny as that is yeah one of the reasons it's so funny yeah is because it's so true yeah okay the other thing is really ai should be artificial intuition mm. because it's not intuitive yeah it's artificial yeah it's artificial yeah but it's but it's trying to copy intuition mm -hmm. right sure is and no worries on that. <laughs> no Absolutely on true. That no Absolutely on that true. End. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole, the, just the whole idea of of this thing of, you know, that 
that you lose that individuality. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that's the saddest part. It's the opposite. Of it. It's the opposite yeah. of individuality it is. and diversity. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like trying. It's but and know, the whole idea of not choosing. Yeah. Because that's what it comes down to. It comes to not choosing. Yeah. And in, in the book I wrote, "Let Your Music Soar," um, I talk about that you don't have to. Uh, judge when when you're creating mm -hmm. like okay here's the pros and cons why you should do this why should no you just hold it up and if it feels good you go with it right and if it doesn't feel good you don't even take the time to say this doesn't feel good just go on why it doesn't else. work yeah. you just find the things that right. work and you go with those the right. work for you right if you find and that's another way in is that you look for the things that work for you and you do those Mm -hmm. And you know they work for you if it feels good. Right. Not if, oh, I think this is that. It's not about thinking, it's about feeling. When mm -hmm. we play music. Absolutely. We do it for the feel. Right. So pick things that feel good. And if you are a Bob Dylan fan, and all you want to do is Bob Dylan songs, and you want to do them just like Bob Dylan, and that feels right. Do it. That's yeah. individuality. Yeah. Even if you're copying someone, yeah. but that's your passion and that's what you love and it feels right, it's okay. it, it works. You know what realization I came to a long time ago was... No, because I don't read your mind. <laughs> Stop, Courtney. Okay. <laughs> Is that, that no matter how hard you try to copy somebody you're still going to sound like yourself. That's right. And that's the truth. That's you can true. copy somebody for 20 years and you're still going to end up sounding like yourself. Yeah. and, and, and the, I've seen that a thousand and times. And the challenge with that for some people is that they'll never sound as good as the person they're copying. No, they won't. <laughs> but if they try to, if they just keep doing it long enough, they'll sound like themselves and sound really good. And sound really good. Yeah. 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 What was that great Woody Allen? I mean, I movie? think it all. Works. Remember that great Woody Allen movie? Uh, what was it? Something Moon. Uh, oh. The one with Sean Penn. Yeah. Not what was it? What was the name of it? But it was the one where he wanted to be as good as Django Reinhardt, and he goes, "I'm the guy that's." Almost as good as Jango Reinhardt. Oh, wow. Well, it was a thing in marketing. It was such a great movie. I always say, you know, in marketing, I said, you know, well, I opened for, um, I opened for Mick Jagger. I opened for uh, the, uh, the Michael Jackson. I opened for Janis Joplin. I opened for Joni Mitchell. It's like, that means you're not them. Yeah. <laughs> you're making that clear. Right. Because you opened for them. Right. Don't. Don't ever say Don't you say open that. for something. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. ever say that. Right. When right. you're, you know, yeah. trying to have a career or something, which I never tried to have, but don't say that. <laughs> so what was your experiences with, uh, because, I mean, I know you're on a lot of labels besides, I mean, you you were on Vanguard. How many albums were you committed with them? It was, I know. Committed it was, is the right word. Yeah, I know. Committed. Yeah. I think there was were five. Six? Five? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And RC was five. I think Joe had like ten. 
No, I think so. Oh, yeah. God. Well, yeah. he won the lawsuit. So. Yeah, yeah, I guess he did. Yeah. But uh, um, what was the biggest label you were on? Well, they didn't get bigger, they got smaller. Deutsche Grammophone. It, it started, yeah, okay, to answer, to answer your question. Deutsche Grammophone sold. Was that the first classical yeah, record? Yeah, the first one went platinum. Wow. The second one sold hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and then so, and then what other labels were you on besides those? Uh, okay, so Vanguard. Okay. RCA. Oh, you were on RCA. Yeah, for five okay. albums. Okay. Wow. Alligator. Well, for four. RCA is a pretty big label. It's pretty big. How did that? How did that go? Really good. Really? Yeah, really fun too. Why? Like, I had the head of sales and the head of promotion come to my little apartment to try and talk me into going on the road and touring a lot. And they left me with a little RCA dog, which you've seen in some right. videos, <laughs> and said they wanted to lock me in the room with one of their artists and leave. What did that mean? It meant I wouldn't travel. Oh, you're saying because you wouldn't travel, they were pissed off. Yeah, they yeah they wanted yeah. me to you know go on the road. Go on the road. I said, look, we already did it, and you guys weren't there. Really? You didn't promote it, so what am I yeah. doing wasting? My, I'll go where I want to go. Yeah. Because we play music. So what yeah. happened? You had an album out, and they just didn't bother to promote the tour. Well, it's the music industry, right? So. They're interested in making money, and uh -huh. that's it. Yeah. So, for whatever reasons, you know, we Seagulls Raw played in San Francisco, and they weren't around. Mm. There was no promotion. Yeah. And so I thought, what are we going on the road for them? Yeah. If they're not, if they're not promoting it, hell yeah. 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 And even so, our mission. Jim and I and the band was to play music and we went places we wanted to go mm -hmm. you know we weren't just trying to play every night at the right right and we wanted to make the music really always fun now did you guys tour much I mean was there a period where you guys were really on the road a lot from 1966 uh-huh to 1960 D eight. So two years you were on the road a lot. Just no home. No home. Just yeah. straight. And that was before RCA. Yeah. So we had enough. And that was true of Butterfield's band was like that too, I heard. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we just went on the road. Mm -hmm. So and that was great. And But that's a hard it's was, a hard life. Well we didn't I think as a as a twenty year old or yeah, the, you know, yeah. twenty year old I mean that's that's really not a bad thing at that point. Yeah, we didn't know any better and we were having a ball. Yeah. Yeah. And then we got smart. Yeah. We got smarter and we said what do we need to do that? Yeah. Let's stay home. If you can stay home and drive Yeah, we had to come back. Yeah. We had that two hundred and fifty mile radius right, thing. Right. If you and we that, played yeah. one night at the quiet night. Right. And then and then the weekends we would just accept gigs yeah. within 250. And then if we wanted to go to San Francisco, fly on. no one was stopping us. Right. We drove, actually. Oh, did you really? Yeah, because wow. we'd go to Colorado. 
okay. play a gig and then go to San Francisco. So you'd kind of route it out a little. A little bit. Yeah. And we played a couple things and then mm -hmm. went back home. Or we want, and usually it was just San Francisco and Colorado is all we ever right. really wanted to go. But we went there, you know. You probably had good that. followings, I would think, in those places. We did. Yeah. We did. Well, I remember when I went to the uh, the Summer of Love uh uh, what was it? Reunion? The celebration that yes. they had. They, yeah. they had a thing at the Young Museum. And I think I sent you a bunch of the posters. Yeah, our posters. And it was like, man, I was like, I had no idea you guys played in San Francisco as often as you did. Yeah, constantly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we, lived there. We, we moved there for a couple months and just played. And there wasn't the kind of thing as, oh, well, you played the Avalon, you can't play the Fillmore. You could play either one. We just kept playing. Yeah. There's a you know, well, okay, we'll do this, do that, you know. Yeah. And it was, it was great. What was, a, what was a memorable double bill that you can think of? Oh, man. Uh, the, the one that just sticks in my mind right here was, um, it was, uh, I know Sly and the Family Stone, I think, was on it, but mm -hmm. it was Jeff Beck, Mm -hmm. And his singer was Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart, right. And I, I don't know why that just sticks, but yeah. I just remember. Yeah. You know. That was a great combination. Yeah, and Rod sang with his back to the audience. Did he really? Interesting, yeah. Wow. He was so shy. That's funny. Yeah. That was Ron Wood in the band, too. I don't know. Yeah, Ron Wood was the bass wow. player. Yeah, so yeah. I remember that. And um, I remember Bill Graham calling Jim Schwal. We were staying at the Iroquois Hotel in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And he said, Jim, bring the band over. I want you to meet someone. And they, he introduced us to Jimi Hendrix. Wow. <laughs> Too much. Was he on the bill? He was playing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and uh, there's rumors that we, we, that I sat in with him or so. I don't remember that at hmm. all. Or we were on the bill with him or so. I don't yeah. remember that. But yeah. Jimmy and Janis Joplin, she was a fan. Well, and I know you told me you picked them up when they came to Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. That was... 19, Mother Blues or something. Yeah. yeah, 1966. Right. Yeah. That was... That was the drive. And I know, I know they said they were broke-ass by the time they left. They were what? Broke. By the time they left oh. Chicago, they... Oh, I didn't They know basically that. were really broke, yeah. Yeah, well, they had no one yeah. turned out. No one turned out. Well, they said they drove back, I think, in a convertible with all their instruments sticking oh, out take, of the... They no, they drove back. Because yeah. we... No, they drove back. We picked them up from the airport. I picked them up. No. They ended up getting a car, either a driveway or buying a car, and wow. they drove back in the car. Yeah. I might have remembered that. Yeah. No, they, I did interviews with both Peter Albin, the oh. bass player, and, and Dave Getz, the drummer, and they both... They were very nice. Confirm that. They're yes. great guys. Yeah. Yeah. And they were very humble. Yeah. Well, I'm sure. Very. I'm sure. Well, that was, and, you know, that was a new new band when yeah. when they came out there. I think that's where they recorded the first album, actually. Yeah. They recorded the first album, I think, in Chicago. Oh, wow. Maybe. I, I can't remember. It was either... I know that the album was... I think so. I think they recorded either in Chicago or in San Francisco, uh -huh. right around that same time. Yeah, yeah. So, um, just tell me some uh, some. Here's another question I had: When you guys were touring, was it Sam in the band at that time? In 1960s. Sam Lay, yeah. No, it's Russ Chadwick. 
Jack Dawson, and Jim and I. But you had an integrated band at one point. Uh, earlier. Uh, okay. It was Jack Myers. Okay. That was that was very early Siegel Schwab. Uh, when we when we absolutely started out, it was Josh Davidson, Russ Chadwick, Jim Schwab, and me, and we were all white. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but before that, again, Johnny Pepper set us up with right. with famous bass players and, and right. drummers. So that's a, and then. Joss didn't want to go on the road, and that's where Jack Myers joined the band, mm -hmm. and we did a few things with him, and then we ended up getting uh, Jack Dawson, okay, and that was there for a while, and then it wasn't until, and then Sam was in the band in 1969. Okay. And now, but just for a year. Okay, so I'm just curious about so something. Because back and forth. This is something I've always wondered. I mean, you know, I, I don't hear much about this. You know, I don't think I brought it up that much in some of the other interviews with, with guys from that time that had integrated bands like Butterfield and you guys. Uh -huh. What was that like going on the road? I mean, were there weird situations you guys would get into where, you know... You mean like police holding guns to... No, more just people treating you guys badly because you were integrated. Having a gun held to your head isn't... Did that happen? Badly? Yeah. The cops? Yeah. What happened? Get out of the car! And was this just, they pulled you over and, and yeah. that was that? Or the restaurant. Uh, we don't serve you people. Here. Right, right. Did or that the kind hotel. Of stuff Sorry, we're all booked up. Did that kind but of stuff... But we have reservations. So that kind of stuff did happen? Every day. Really? Every day. Every day with when it was an integrated band. Even even with Chamber Blues in the nineties. What? Yeah. We don't have people like you aren't allowed in here. And when would like where would this happen? Like in the Midwest? Uh, my group wanted to go in and drink somewhere. Yeah. You know, have some drinks. And they walked in and Frankie was our table player. Uh-huh. And they they let everyone in and stopped Frankie. Wow. Said, we don't allow people like you in here. Where was this? Florida. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, we'd also very commonly, when you know, Rallo and Sam were in the band. Right, right. So you, you had know, two black guys in the band at that point. Yeah, we oftentimes would, they wouldn't get served. Yeah. We'd be sitting there and we'd get our order and they would never get their order. Unbelievable. Yeah. So and this was in the Midwest? All over. All you over. name it. And, and the thing is, um, in the earlier days... And this was 69? Yeah, we'd have somebody go in. And one time, Rallo was pulled out of... I wasn't there, but he was pulled out of his car. Then they realized they got the wrong guy. And they beat him up. In Chicago? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... There was a... You know, and I was beat up by the police, and they broke into my house and beat me up. Because they thought I was the... The... Um, money behind one of the uh, political movements. Really? And uh, I saw, they broke walls and everything and there was a zebra, glass zebra that they broke, which we glued together and I still have it. Stuff like that. So let me ask you this, uh, how did that affect you guys as a band? 
we were to have to, did that draw everybody closer together having stuff like that go down i think we were already close yeah you know we it was just the reality to it was just the reality you're dealing with yeah. yeah 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 and i mean the other thing i i really want to talk about you and sam because sam you know, lay yeah sam lay because sam lay was such a he was, I mean, he was literally one of the last of the Chicago blues drummers to really kind of, I mean, he got recognition, but I'm just saying he was such a giant in the blues drumming world. And I saw both you and Holly really look after him. And I was so impressed with just the way you, you two took care of him. That that was a, a real... Thing that I respected about the both of you for doing that. I mean, there's two things with that, and then also just your guys' political bent and the fact that you're both you're so politically involved and you you're such true believers in 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 a hopeful world. And uh, and I mean, it's an unusual thing in, in in life, you know, to meet people that look out for somebody like Sam and also you know have been uh, you know. Crusaders for Common Cause and a lot of other programs that you guys have aligned yourself yeah. with. But uh, Sam, Sam was somebody that for me, I mean, that was that was really a, a powerful thing that I saw you guys do. Letting him live at your house and and looking. Did, did, didn't he live there for a while? Or was it, would, would he just spend no. the night occasionally or whatever? Well, he could spend the night anytime he but wanted. But you guys took him to appointments, as I recall, and well, a little bit here yeah. and there. Holly, Holly took really good care of him. She, he called Holly the uh, lieutenant, right? Sergeant. Sergeant. Sergeant Holly. Sergeant Holly. Yeah. So she, he had to follow her routine. And, right. You know, we, we tried to take care of him. He wasn't easy to take care of. Right. But, but you, we, guys, we tried. you guys definitely made the effort. I mean, Holly really yeah. did. I, you I, guys really made the effort, yeah. and I thought that was... Yeah. You know, that's a really commendable thing because, you know, especially somebody that's older than you as he was, you know, that that's it's a tricky situation. Well, I got a funny story about that sort of a culmination. I, I took care of him sort of more on the stage uh, during the performances and in, in, in that organizational world. But Holly took care of him and all the logistics and everything else and making sure he got dressed and all these things but <laughs> so uh sam is getting old and i could see that he wasn't gonna be able to play the drums the way he's been playing it mm -hmm. it was you know starting to lose some of his yeah and, and, I, and I felt like a lot of it was just psychological because he knew he was getting old right and, you know so um i thought we better make one more record and we should make sure that Sam writes some songs mm -hmm. on this record. Sam had never written a song before. I said, Sam, it's really easy, you know. So he wrote a bunch of songs. Wow. And put it on the album. And then, and then we tried to um, get him to perform the songs, and he wouldn't perform any of them. I got him to perform mm. a little bit of us. Well, he played, he did a, a guitar and sang on one of our albums. Right. Beautiful. Really beautiful. And yeah. he wrote the song. Yeah. And he wouldn't, when when we would have him 
play that in the show, he would end up playing a, a Lightning Hopkins tune right. instead of the one he wrote. Yeah, because it was easier. Yeah. yeah. And so I finally got him to do a song called Going Back to Alabama. And, and he, and I'd have the lyrics for him and he'd forget it and I'd say, and I'd yell the words to him and just anything to get him to play it, right? right. So, um, the day he died, I believe it was the day he died or the day of his, the actual funeral. Mm -hmm. Oh no, it was the day of his funeral because they decided to, uh, well, Sam wanted to be buried in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And so the day of his funeral, they shipped him to Alabama. Hmm. And that's the day I got the royalty statement for $600 for the song Going Back to Alabama. So that basically brought him back to Alabama. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Because that Alligator so Records bizarre. put that song on yeah. one of their special yeah. compilations. What a trip. And it got, of course, a lot of yeah. attention. And he... Now, the first time he made money on a song, he had already... God almighty. And it's called Going Back to Alabama, God, that and that's so where bizarre. it was going. Yeah. And now you worked with him in the Chicago Blues Reunion as well, right? That is right. Yeah. So that was... Uh, that was that an was experience. An experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was like... Uh, that was really kind of like the Kermungeon Blues Express there, right? <laughs> Well, we were going through the airport, and Sam was in a wheelchair. Right. Harvey was in a wheelchair. Nick was in a wheelchair. Nick Gravenitis. Yeah, Nick Gravenitis. Harvey Mandel. Sam. And we're wheeling him through the airport. And uh, we said, well, guys, rock and roll. This is the roll part. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And you had Barry, Barry Goldberg. Barry Goldberg, too. Yeah. And so... So Holly, Holly just said, you know, the Rolling Stones, hey, you get off, hey, you get off, I don't, what is get it? Get off of my cloud. Yeah, no, we're changing the lyrics. Yeah. Hey, hey, you get off of my lawn. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what, I have a friend that wrote a song called that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Billy Wirtz wrote a song. Oh, I know Billy Wirtz. Yeah, yeah, He's he, a wrote, friend. he yeah. wrote that, yeah. He would have. Hey, you, get off my lawn. Hey, punks, get off my lawn. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you get off of my lawn. So uh, how long did you guys do the the, the Chicago Blues reunion for? It's sort of, for me, it sort of faded out, so it's hard to say, because they, they, um, I, uh, <coughs> I slipped away from it mm -hmm. at some point, and right. they kept it going for a little right. while. Right, And actually, the guy that, that played a harmonica was, um... Rob Stone, you Yeah, mean? Rob Stone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So right. I thought that was a nice, nice match. Yeah, well, he was real good friends with Barry. And Barry, exactly, yeah. 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 So um, that was really nice. And then you have the movie. They, they made the movie about you guys Born well. in Chicago, yeah. Right. Originally, it was about all the young white kids falling in love with the blues. Right. And they changed the story over time. Right, I noticed that. Cause it but that's fine. It had a few different forms, as I recall. It did. It yeah. Did. Yeah. But but it's good. It's really yeah. very, very nice. Yeah. Nice. Now it's more about Butterfield and Bloomfield, and that's it. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I'm in the movie. You're I'm in the movie. Yeah. 
you know, and they don't yeah. really talk about a lot. You know, well, they, I kind of my one critique of it was it felt like it really kind of excluded a lot of the older guys. That too, uh, and and I didn't like that angle of yeah. it. And I know the guy who made it, Bob Searles. I know Bob. Yeah. And 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 it was like that's the one thing I felt was it was kind of missing was, you know. And it's something like that. There's always something missing. And I'll tell you what I remember. Here's one of my memories of Sam was on when we did the Chicago Blues Festival together, and Harvey Mandel was there and a bunch of other people. Oh, yeah. And I remember Sam was in the back room kind of had some people gathered around him. And then at one point, everyone left. It was just me and Sam. And he just kind of had this real sad look on his face. He goes, you know, I started all these guys, man. He goes, I started them out, and they've all forgotten about me. Wow. And it really made, <laughs> it really did a number on me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I said, you know, I just said, no, they haven't forgotten about you. No, but I understand how you feel. Yeah. You know. But it was like, man, that was that was a sad thing to see yeah. somebody his age feeling like that. Yeah. You know. But I understand it. I, I totally get it. Because, you know, it's kind of like all of us are mentors to somebody. You know what I mean? We're all mentors to somebody. And eventually it does come down to that thing of that the older you get, the more you see people constantly taking your place and kind of taking up a lot of the attention. No one's taking my place, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my friend, R.W., R.W. wrote this great song. Okay, he wrote a great song. He sang song. it. I think I heard you sing it. I don't know if you did, but yeah. he wrote this great song that's brand new. Okay. It's about, you know, a shuffling. It's, I shuffled in the morning, I shuffled, shuffled on the train, I shuffled after midnight, I shuffled in the rain, you know. Uh, but what you gonna do when your shuffling days are gone? Let me tell you, boy, there's some new kid coming along. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. Know? That's yeah. really what it is. But um, the, the other thing I wanted to just talk about a little bit was just the, uh, uh, the you know, the, your, your, your merging of, from going from symphonies, you eventually kind of merged something where you worked with string quartets. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, and I want you to talk a little bit about how that came to be. And I couldn't get a symphony in the bus very easily. No. <laughs> Very expensive. Yeah. You know, I took up, and someone said, why did you give up harmonica for the, give up saxophone for the harmonica? Mm -hmm. Easier to take in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Same thing with the string quartet and the symphony. Right, right. <laughs> in every way. So it takes me about a year to write a symphonic work, a 30-minute, 20-minute symphonic work. Mm -hmm. And it takes me a, maybe a month or a couple weeks or three weeks, something like that, to write a nice little chamber piece. Well, if it's a song, I could write that like in a couple weeks. Right. If it's just music, instrumental, that that's going to take a couple months. Take longer, yeah. Yeah, but not a year. Right. And I could be writing a couple of them at the same time. And, you know, so it was more portable in every way. Uh, and I love the sound of a string quartet. 
and then tabla, of course, was the percussion mm -hmm. instrument of choice, Indian tabla. And um, it's the same project. It's finding ways of having a classical string quartet maintain its classical character, mm -hmm. but involved in the work, not just sweetening, mm -hmm. but actually part of the composition. Right. And blues harmonica or blues piano, how they could work together without without melding, without blending, mm -hmm. but staying separate. Mm -hmm. So that you hear the blues character, you hear the classical character, and they're working together. That's sort of the mission. It doesn't always happen that way, because I just go with whatever happens. Right. But that's sort of, the, the mission is always there. And you've kind of worked with musicians from all over the world, haven't you? Well, I mean, I know you've got some Indian percussionists yeah. that have come in. Oh yeah, yeah, but but um, oh yeah, the guest artists. Yeah, guest there artists. A lot of yeah. guest artists. Toronzo Cannon. Right, right. So what happens is we uh, Hollywood think think you know you know what the blues festival is coming, let's do a show at the City Winery in Chicago with a blues guy. So we call Bruce. Hey Bruce, do you have any recommendations for? Yeah, Taranzo Cannon. So I meet with Taranzo Cannon. I listen to a bunch of his songs. I do arrangements for his songs. Mm -hmm. I wish you could hear one of them on that album. Oh, probably, okay. Maybe right. you probably haven't heard it. It's hysterical. Heard it. no. He does insurance. You know his song, Insurance? No. Oh, it's, we'll play it for you. Okay. But insurance. And so I do a classical arrangement of his blues tune. Hmm. As much as you could possibly do that. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's really, really cool. You know, so, um, so, but I would write a bunch of tunes for him and he'd come and do the show with us. Mm -hmm. And then she'd say, we should do something with Ernie. Hey, Ernie, you want to do Chamber of Lucy? Yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, I wrote an arrangement for his hit tune of Oasis. 13 minute arrangement. Wow. And then um, someone else had written some other string quartet things for him, so I used those. Um, and then Marcy, I wrote like five or six things for Marcy, Marcella Detroit. Right, right. You know, including Lay Down Sally. And right. A very classical. And she's, arrangement she's played with all, sang with all kinds of yeah. famous people. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what would happen is, I have all was these. Was her name Marcy, Marcy Levy? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what we did on the on the last two used albums. Date her cousin. <laughs> the last two albums, we would choose which was our favorite song from mm -hmm. each artist, from each show. We'd have, we'd pick one song, and then we call that different voices that album. And then the next album, we did more different voices, and we did the same thing. We chose, you know, different people. So Marcy's on it again, and Taranzo, uh, a, a Jewish cantor who's from wow. Ukraine. Wow. That was not intended. Yeah. The album, once it went on the album, then the war broke out. Wow. So we had this Jewish cantor singing a Jewish song for peace. How wild. From Ukraine. That's incredible. It's on the album. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a, the song lasts 15 seconds. Well, half a minute. I, I wrote a seven minute 
version of it. You know, theme and variations. Mm -hmm. It's really good, really beautiful, the way it came out. But anyway, who else is on the album? You know? uh, oh, Tracy. Frank Oral from Poi Dog Pondering. I'm not sure. Tracy Nelson? Tracy Nelson. Oh, okay, Tracy, yeah. Yeah, she did a beautiful yeah. job. And Wow. Yeah, so, but it's, it's again, the approach is have the string quartet play in the classical mode and not play long notes. It's not sweetening. It's they're right. a guitar player. It's what? They're the guitar player. Oh, okay. I always tell right. sound engineers when they're we're doing a live show. Right. Think of the, the string quartet as the guitar player. Interesting. Wow. So it's guitar and vocal. Yeah. And harmonica. Wow. They're the guitar. Yeah. What a trip. Yeah. So now when did you start doing that? Was that when you were with Alligator that you kind of started doing that? We started in 87. Because you, you were doing the the Alligator Records nice. and Siegel Schwal. Yeah. But you were doing this previous to the Alligator Records. Yeah, this was okay. first. Wait, no. All right. About the same time. Well, no. Siegel Schwal, we did a recording for them in 87. Mm -hmm. Then we did Chamber Blues in 94. Okay. Or 91 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and then we did another Siegel Schwal one. And then we did another Chamber Blues. You know, it was like that. So you're kind of straddling both... Both yeah, projects. But, but Chamber Blues has five, at least five albums, and, and two of them are an alligator. Mm -hmm. Right. And the players themselves are from different um, cultures. What? The, the players. Oh, the play. What's interesting, and this wasn't planned, we have an African-American cellist. Mm -hmm. We have a, a violinist from Taiwan. Mm-hmm and a violinist from Spain, and Tabu from India. Yeah, so you're a real multicultural yeah. orchestra. And an American violist. Right, wow. Very interesting. Have you guys traveled all over the world with that? Yeah. Not, Where not have we been? We have. I think we've stayed in the United States, yeah, right? We've been to France, actually a blues oh, festival, twice. Blues sur it's Where is a, that? It's in outside Mont, of Paris. which is outside of Paris. It's a blues festival. And oh, okay. Blues did, uh, that you played there twice. The Monterey Blues Festival we played twice. Wow, okay. Um, uh, Winnipeg Folk Festival they played. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Aspen Music Festival twice. That's that's yeah. wow. that the really first non-classical group. Wow. And then they had us back. So that was big. That is big. That was, yeah, that is big. The BAMP Festival. BAMP Festival. The Festival Salmon Arm in Vancouver. Uh, yeah, I know that one. I've yeah, played that they, one. Yeah, yeah. Nice. yeah. yeah. Did I ever tell you the story of don't ever, don't ever ask me where one is? What a one is? Where one is. Where one is. Yeah, where's one? I don't yeah. remember. So when we did the Salmon Arm Festival with Chamber Blues, we have a photograph of it. They want you to do a workshop, but right. what a workshop means, it's not a workshop, it's just jam with other musicians and four right. people. So we had a Unis, Unisa, Lunasa. Lunasa, the Irish, the Irish string band, hmm. and we had uh, Hassan Hakmoun, the Moroccan band. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to jam with both of them at the same time, with right. Chamber Blues. Right. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. A lot of people on stage. Eighteen people. Wow. 
So I talked to Lunasa and I said, can you play a, do you know 12 bar blues? No, they didn't. I said, well, just play in the key of G and do an Irish jig. It'll work. Right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, okay. And so I went to Hakmoon and we worked on something. And I said, Hakmoon, there's one thing I have to tell you, especially because this is going to be quite cacophonic. Cacophonic. Is I, you know, as a musician, have a lot of trouble sometimes knowing where one is. I'll have to turn to my blues band. And you know, turn to Rollo or Jim. Where's one? Yeah, because I'll I'll get lost and, and right. uh, things get reversed, and I yeah, and they'll have to give me a. And he said, "Man, you Western musicians, you always need to know where one is. One is in here. Don't ever ask me where one is. Don't <laughs> ever ask Akmoon." Hassan Hakmoon, where one is. <laughs> okay. So anyway, <laughs> we're there jamming. And it is noise. It is cacophony. Is it? And I'm on my knees, and Hakmoon plays this bass instrument. And he's like wailing away. Right. Hakmoon, where's the one? What man? What man? Where's two? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, and I'll count backwards from that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to find the one. Where's two? So, so tell me about this last thing that you just got done doing in in Germany. Oh yeah. In this small town. Well, it was so we played the second Russo piece called Street Music, and it was for five performances and a couple rehearsals, and it was wild. It was a great symphony. And where, what town was this in? It was in Regensburg, Germany. And is that a small town? Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a small town, but it's a, it's a, uh, an ancient town. Yep, medieval. Medieval. No awesome. cars. No yeah. cars. And when, occasionally when Holly and I call a symphony and saying, you know, would you like to do street music, you know, or my, my new pieces or this or that. They never call back. Right. Zero. Right. Right. But every once in a while, someone calls me and they go, we'd like you to play with the London Symphony or this or that. Right. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's how we get the gigs. This particular one was a word of mouth. We had played in another symphony in Germany for nine performances. Mm -hmm. And the musicians in that orchestra, some of them now are playing in the reggae. Oh, okay. Oh, you got to do this. And so basically you had some... Some people crossover. That, yeah, there was some crossover, and that's how you got the gig. And that's how we got the original German gig. Was it? Which is from funny. musicians. Yeah. Someone gave the yeah. conductor a CD. This is a funny story. Yeah. He puts it in his car, and he, and he listens, starts listening to it. He listened to, like, the first... And he hated it. The, the first two minutes, the first, first minute of street music... There's a long, kind of like in Rhapsody in Blue, you have that long sweep, where there's right. a long sweep of harmonica that goes, wow, and he just went, oh no, and he clicked it off right then after yeah. like 10 seconds. So He went, oh no, that's not happening. <laughs> so that was it. So, you know, a couple months later, he get, he's in his car, 
And he didn't know the CD was still in there. Ah. And he turned on what he thought was the radio. Yeah. And he's hearing from the two minutes, he's hearing the rest of the piece. And he loved, he said, what is this piece of music? <laughs> and he's waiting for the announcer to say oh, what the so piece great. of music is. That's so great. So he judged it once negatively exactly. and then heard it again and judged it positively. Exactly. He wanted to do it nine performances. That's we like amazing. best friends. That is amazing. He said it blew his mind because you know, he's waiting, waiting, waiting. And then this CD pops out and he went, oh no. It can't be that. <laughs> but you know what's so great about that is that's one of those examples of like yeah. how you're listening or your, your preconception of something can get altered. Constantly. There's it can no... be altered. And it can be like all of a sudden you hear the same thing, but you hear it on the radio or what you think is the radio. It makes and you have a total different... Yeah, and you, you can't step into the same river twice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a different experience. But what, that was one of the things I wanted to mention is, you know, we we're talking about, I, I asked you on our break about just this whole thing of how, you know, music can resonate from such a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, some, you can hear something and it just sticks in you. It stays with you. And, and it can happen, you know, you can, rec- you can resurrect something from 50 years ago and how it affected you. And you might not hear the person again for 50 years, but that one time yeah. stays with you. Yeah. And I think with all artists, we have that capacity to get into people's heads yeah. and, uh-huh. they, and they don't forget you. And, right. and there's something really, to me, it's very rewarding to know that that can happen. Well, you know, as Ernie says, it's our job. That's yeah. our job. It's clear what our job is. You know, people yeah. come up constantly to artists. Yeah. And here's some things they say to all artists. That was the best concert I ever heard. Right. right. I love that. One. Right. That's a great one. And they yeah. have to say that. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it should be. Yeah. Every concert yeah. should be. Yeah. We, we think, oh, hey. That was the best concert they ever heard. Sorry. But anyway, the next day. That could change a month later. (laughs) Yeah. Or the day next day. Yeah. Definitely it'll change the next day. Right. How easy they forget. Right. But um, then they'll say, you know, I I was really depressed. And you you guys just made me. Or this is where I met my wife at your concert. Right. Or I had a really bad cold. And it's gone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. You healed me. Yeah. You know. No, there's there's a lot of different scenarios of, of, of how that happens. But I mean, you know, the other thing is if you see somebody once and they move you, it doesn't mean you have to go back and see them every time they come no. out of town. No, it doesn't. Because that performance is probably gonna stay with you. And I mean I don't know about in some you, way, but, in some yeah, but I mean there's so many people I've seen over my lifetime that I only saw them once or twice. And it still stayed with me. Yeah. You know? my, my memory is a thing of the past. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there are those little moments, yeah. I, I, I haven't thought about it that much, what you're talking about on that, you know. But um, I haven't listened to music that much. 
as I tell people, it's pouring out of my ears. Mm -hmm. You know, my foot's going all night. You know. It is, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. You, you too, probably. But I, oh yeah, I haven't really pursued listening to music. Doesn't mean I haven't listened to it. Yeah, just means it's not. <laughs> After some of the initial stuff in my early days, there was a point where it was just me pouring out whatever comes out mm -hmm. and not pursuing listening. Yeah. So, but <clears throat> I think music is an amazing medium. Here, listen to this one. It's an amazing medium. The artist gets way too much credit. Yeah. Oh, you got that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. The music, just yeah. the, we get to play in the sandbox. Music is a gift. Yeah. It's a gift. It comes through people. And we get to play in the sandbox and manipulate the musical elements to mm -hmm. our own delight. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we get to do. And then, oh, what a great artist. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. But the music. We're just the, the medium. Power of music, We're just the yeah. medium. Yeah, the power That's of music is. is amazing. Yeah, it is. And the way I explain it is, well, no, I, I don't want to get into that. It's okay. But I, okay, here's the best example. So Holly said to me, boy, what a genius that artist is that wrote this composition mm -hmm. with birds on a wire and he based that on the composition. Mm -hmm. And listen to that music, it's genius. And so some other day I said to Holly, I I'm gonna write this down, tell me, pick a number from one to five. Pick another number from one to five, you know, and I just did that and I just wrote these numbers down. Mm -hmm. And what she didn't know is that the, the first numbers were the pitches. I already had re defined one through five as different pitches, so mm -hmm. she was choosing the pitches. Uh -huh. And then the next one through five was the rhythm, so was it a whole note or uh -huh. half note? Okay. Okay, so basically... So you wrote your first piece <laughs> and didn't even know it. <laughs> so I, 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 I put it in, you know, I recorded it just exactly the way she did. The only thing I did was I added dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, because later I did another experiment where I had 36 people name numbers and letters and things. And I had it actually... So you listen. So I played the piece for Holly a few days afterwards. I said, I want you to listen to something. And she heard this. She said, that's brilliant. Who wrote that? And you did. <laughs> so. That's great. The artist gets way too much credit. Yeah. And the music is so powerful that you could just name numbers and create this beautiful, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we get to do that. Yeah. We get to choose things we yeah. like and, you know. Yeah. And it's fun. And it's fun. And it is fun. And I mean, you know, I, I have to say, I mean, I go, I go through these times when I start songs and I just kind of, I put them in a, on, on my phone. I just, you know, come up with some lyrics or whatever. Sometimes they'll sit around for five or ten years. Yeah. And then at some point I go, I got to write some songs. Yeah. yeah. And I'll take all those lyrics and I'll maybe write with somebody else or I'll just start kind of manipulating the lyrics that I have. And it's like to be able to come up with a yeah. 
an actual yeah. song. That yeah, that's, it's really, a, it's an awesome thing. Yeah. It's an awesome thing. Yeah, we have the song we're playing yeah. tonight called Queen Ida, oh. which is like that. I wrote, I wrote a bunch of lyrics for it a long time ago when I was sitting in with Queen Ida. Right. A couple times. I remember her, yeah. Yeah. And she was the first person I ever saw that talked in a third person. <laughs> oh, really? And she would go, Queen Ida does not play for less than $1,500. <laughs> well, Mickey Raffel was her harmonica player, and he had me sit in really? a couple times. Really? Yeah. Wow. So um, uh, I wrote this song, and I finished it, like, what, a year ago or a half, six months ago or something like that. And um, I'm singing it tonight. Cool. It's an interesting tune. I will hear it. Yeah. Are you going to play something with me? I would love to. How about Billie Jean? Uh, depends. I only got an A harmonica on me. I'll see if I got some more in the in the car. Yeah, you need a D harmonica to D. play an okay. A. Well, no, I can play on an A. Oh, in the key of, in, you in the key of A. In the key of A, I can play on an A harmonica in A. Okay. Yeah, that's not a problem. Wow. I don't know how you do that. Corky, it's been fascinating. Mark, thanks always- again.